there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, high above the clouds flies the second greatest pilot who ever lived, the great Waldo Pepper. It was a time of heroes, daredevils and dames, and a time of Waldo. A biplane pilot who missed flying in World War I takes up barnstorming on a quest for the glory he had missed out on during the war. We focus in on director George Roy Hill, where this sits in his filmography, the stories he desired to tell on the big screen, and the overall themes he brought to his films. Then, the film itself, the powerful use of music and silence, the crazy real-life plane stunts and how they were achieved, and a scene in the movie that is so heart-wrenching you may just not recover. Roger and Quentin reach deep into the psyche of Waldo Pepper, discussing chasing your dreams and the power of living a lie. It should have been me. All of this and more on today's episode of the Video Archives podcast. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino. And cut the Henry Mancini. This is Doc Dillhoffer's Flying Video Arcade with Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. (laughs) This is Roger Avery, and I'm here with... Quentin Tarantino. And we're here today talking about one of my all-time very favorite films. I'm so excited to be here speaking about it. In fact, I'm a little nervous leading up to (laughs) speaking about it. I love this film so much. Yeah, this is Roger Day here at the... uh... (laughs) This is definitely a Roger Day because the film that we're discussing is The Great Waldo Pepper. um, By George Roy Hill. And starring Robert Redford. And And written by Wim Goldman. Shot by Surtees. And this is... An absolutely technically magnificent movie. I'm so thrilled to talk about it. For me, on the Roger Index, this is as close as one can get to a perfect film. Wow, cool. Uh, and I know, and I know that you have your own feelings about it. And in fact, I know that everybody who made the movie has mm-hmm. their own feelings about the film and why it um, suffered mm-hmm. at the box office, or maybe why it suffered in front of audiences. 
Uh, yeah, I have my own feelings about it, but I'm really curious to hear you uh, because I know how much you love it and everything. Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit, but actually, because we knew we were going to do the show, we kept stopping the conversation. So I'm really kind of really curious for you to go forth on it. Well, and I consider myself a erstwhile George Roy Hill expert a little bit. And you have a book I've read, actually. Uh, oh, yeah, you have the you. Andrew Horton book. Yeah, yeah, I have that book, That's which is terrific. Hello, good people. Robert Redford, the great Waldo Pepper. They called him the second greatest flyer in the world. But Waldo was going to change all that, even if it killed him. J.T. rammed him. Help me! Somebody help me, please! Get away! Robert Redford in The Great Waldo Pepper, rated PG. Let's begin by uh, talking about the box exactly. and reading the box art. Now, this is a it, it's a simple box. One time. of the best universal boxes, if you This ask is me. absolutely one of the best <laughs> MCA universal boxes in... Uh, it looks like a paperback, too. I think it's interesting that it's a yellow box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the movie's about courage. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's of Robert Redford at his... Most handsome yes. for uh-huh. me. And in the reflectivity of his uh, aviator goggles, you know, he's wearing an old yeah, uh-huh. aviator's cap. This takes movie takes place in between like um, 1926 mm-hmm. to 1931, I think. Yeah. And you're talking about Redford, uh, both Redford and Hill coming off of the sting. So they're both at the, the zenith. Yeah. The zenith of their, their start. They've just made power. the most popular movie yeah. for audiences of the year before. And they can do anything. And this is exactly... This is one of the reasons I love this movie. Young aviators back from World War I found that giving up the exhilaration and freedom of flight was not an easy task. Robert Redford, in the title role, barnstorms across the Midwest, taking on rival after rival in his quest for the number one spot in the skies. He meets his match in Axel, Bose Fenson, and together they soar to great heights in stuntmanship. Pepper's sweetheart, Maud, Margot Kidder, stays by his side, hijinks or not, even when Mary Beth, Susan Sarandon, third member of the Waldo Axel team, meets disaster in a daring wing-walking stunt, the drama builds until Pepper finally takes on his longtime arch-rival, former German World War I ace Ernst Kessler, in one final dogfight to the finish. Boy, that description both told you not enough and way, way too much. Yeah, right, exactly. At the exact same time. They, like, they, even with... Well, we're probably going to talk about the wing, the the, the wing we, walking I disaster. Think, you have to. I, I, uh, you I, can't I, talk about the movie if you can't talk about that. Spoiler we, alert. Nevertheless, <laughs> I wish we had said it rather than the clumsy way they said it in here. Well, I think by the time this movie came out on VHS, the film was probably notorious for that moment. The movie follows you know, a, a time in American history before regulation had really locked down, when America was really truly a free place. Mm-hmm. When uh, the further west you went, the more wild and the more free it became. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this, yeah, this is about the barnstorming pilots, you know, the, the, that shortly sh- after that, sh- that showed up after World War One. Yeah, after World War One, all of these pilots, you know, what did they know how to do? They knew how to fly and they found themselves flying for flying circuses, yeah. doing stunts and well, actually, for, for audiences that wanted greater and greater thrills. Audiences who, quite frankly, and it's mentioned multiple mm-hmm. times in the movie, want to see death. But actually, one of the things that they show is the beginning. I would have expected that these early barnstorming pilots would hook up with some sort of flying circus. But one of the parts that I like in the movie the most is at the beginning where you just see uh, Waldo Pepper and his plane and he flies over a bunch of farms 
and then just lands in a field. And then all the families come out, whoa, what's this wild airplane doing? Uh, like an airplane is a big deal. That's like seeing a, a blimp landing yeah. for them. It's like seeing a blimp landing in their farm. What's going on? Well, I'm actually giving uh, rides. Uh, you know, uh, whoever wants to go up in the air, I'll, I'll charge you 25 cents or whatever. And then he just gives a bunch of rides for an hour and a half and then like, and splits. And that money enables him to fly. Yeah, to the next town. <laughs> to, yeah, to the next town. It's like, he's not doing it to get rich. He just is paying for his gas and it allows him to fly every day. He's similar in some ways. And then he's the opposite in other ways. He's similar to Ryan O'Neill's character in, in, in Paper Moon, except he actually gives you what he's selling. He's actually not a con man. Absolutely. You know, he's taking a, a, a farmer's daughter or a farmer's son who is never will never know what it's like to buy a ticket on an airplane and go commercial travel. Commercial travel isn't even a thing then. But put, taking them up for five minutes, that's a big fucking deal. Yeah, but George Roy Hill makes a really interesting point. He uses the main credits of the movie to say this statement. He uh, he promises the kid, the little kid, mm -hmm. a free ride. Hey, you get me, uh, you run into town, get mm -hmm. some gas, and bring it back, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll give you a free ride at the end of the day. Okay, so that free ride is a pretty costly thing. That kid has to run. The, he spends their whole credits following that kid's run to town, uh -huh. down roads, across uh -huh. fields, over fences, mm -hmm. into town, over the credits. He literally leaves Waldo Pepper and follows that kid as if to make the statement, mm -hmm. there is no free ride for this kid. <laughs> <laughs> this kid's paying more than anybody pays. <laughs> but what he gives that kid by the end is a kind of dream yeah. of nobility. The nobility of death, actually, because ultimately, not only does uh, he, he ultimately takes that kid up mm -hmm. in the plane and he gives him and the kid's dog, mm -hmm. a crazy, crazy uh, flight mm -hmm. above the cloud, something mm -hmm. that he would never normally be able to see. And then he goes over to their house. He's yeah. invited into their home. Uh, to, oh, he's the family he tells a story to about yeah. Kessler. And he's, and, and at, at the, at the dinner, the father basically says, rah, 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 like hard uh, daddy's work is, uh, that's a noble thing. But the father loses almost immediately because the minute Waldo starts telling the story, he begins telling the story of, uh, and, and, it, and it begins actually a really interesting way. He says, when asked, are you the best pilot in the world? And he says, no, no, I'm the second best pilot in the world, which is a lie that you can actually believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a weird way. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, he basically tells the story of Ernest Kessler. Um, well, he tells a war story that, it, he, like, that involves him and Ernest Kessler in a dogfight together. Like a Red Baron uh, uh, Brown situation. The story, the story he tells essentially is um, he's up in the air with Ernst Kessler. They're fighting. It's tight. It's close. Kessler gets the advantage on him. All the other men have been shot down and are dead. He's the last one there. He's got Kessler in his sights. Mm -hmm. He tries to fire, but his guns jam. Mm -hmm. He's hitting his guns. He's trying to, mm -hmm. to unjam his guns. They won't jam. Kessler can now take him. He can, he can shoot him down and kill him. Mm -hmm. And instead, he flies alongside him. They look at each other for a moment. He sees, you know, they, they lock eyes together. And then Kessler salutes him and then takes off. He lets him live. He says, I'm not the greatest pilot in the world. I'm the second greatest pilot in the world. Ernst Kessler is the greatest pilot in the world. His, his mortal enemy, suppose his, his enemy in World War I, at least, the other, mm -hmm. the other ace in the air, the, the other guy who, if this, if this um, Ernst Kessler is based on Ernst Udet, who was a real pilot, mm -hmm. he was second only to Richthofen, yeah, you know, the Red yeah. Baron. Mm -hmm. 
And so, yeah, Utit's uh, actually a- acts in uh, a couple of the uh, uh, style mountain movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's actually in them. Yeah, yeah, he's actually in those. <laughs> yeah, because he was such a huge star. Yeah. <laughs> so he tells this this battle story of of him and and Kessler, and the whole table is enraptured in this story of heroism and this story of war glory and and chivalry in the air amongst pilots and and the audience too in the watching the movie yeah. is caught up in this story and then William Goldman makes a very interesting reveal it's a complete lie Waldo's story is a lie which folds actually really nicely into the whole oeuvre of uh, George Roy Hill <laughs> the thesis of the, the of George Roy Hill one of the well, like i said you've got the what, who who wrote that book Andrew Horton yeah i read i read that book as uh, as well and one of the things that that book gets across is it made me rewatch a bunch of George Roy Hill's films and made me really, really appreciate him as a director because, look, cinematically he's fine, but cinematically he's not really adventurous other than accomplishing things. I mm-hmm. mean, like the, the 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 aerial photography he's able to accomplish in this movie is absolutely fucking amazing. You know, it, it calls attention to itself of just like, how the fuck did they do it? Because you don't think about it. But when it comes to actually director's who deal in themes, there's nobody who does it more thoroughly than uh, George Roy Hill. And there's very few directors that, you know, uh, in the last 40 years that have established set themes. You know, Milius has a set theme. And man especially is, since man his is movies, God. Especially know. since his movies are so different. They're so different. but And the, yet thematically, they're all very in line. Uh, on one hand, you can applaud a director for having a theme that is carried over from story to story to story to story to story. However, if I was going to be Pauline Kale about it, I'd go, oh, okay, so he just tells the same fucking story over and over and over again. And then you actually are, are, are giving him props for his unimagination of redoing the same thing over and over again. Oh, wow. Good. That's a good applause. All right. Uh, okay. So that's another- It's a little like faulting, like, I don't know, uh, uh-huh. Nikon for making cameras. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like when people talk about- okay, Okay, well, Consistently. Well, people talk about like, you know, they go, okay, well, what's every Tarantino story has revenge. And then somebody will always, well, seemed to work pretty good for Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the thing about it is what gives Hill's uh, theme real validity is it's usually not a theme of story. It's a theme of protagonist. It's the protagonist he chooses to play. He's a, he, one, he's one of the greatest storytellers, I think, in the history of cinema. He was just a great, great story. He's right up there with Howard Hawks when it comes to one of the Absolutely. great storytellers. Yeah, but, there, there is no fat on this movie. Yeah. This movie is yeah. super efficient in how it tells its story. But it's about the protagonist, who he chooses as his leads, who he chooses as his protagonists who are telling the story. And, you know, dictates the stories that he tells. And his protagonists are always either dreamers or liars or con men. And when I say con men, I'm not just referring to The Sting. I'm referring to other films. Sure. Well, this movie in yeah. some ways. Uh, well, there there is an aspect that his richest characters have a little bits of all three. Yeah. His dreamers are completely you know, committed to their dream and are willing to lie to see their dream come true. The liars are so committed to their lie of making, maybe making their lie into a reality that they, well, they dream their lies into being truth. Yeah. And the con men are the opposite. The con men are the people who don't believe in anything except the execution 
of the the professionalism of the con. And yeah, that goes thing, yeah. yeah. And actually in 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 all in all the cases in his movies, it, it is a bunch of people coming together to create a false reality for one person. So now that's obviously the storyline of the sting. It's also how the Israelis recruit Charlie, the pro-Palestinian actress in uh, The Little Drummer Girl, how they promote her into uh, their espionage elk is they stage an entire commercial because she's an actress. They yeah. stage an entire commercial to get over to the Middle East that to doesn't exist yeah. just to con her into doing this job. And and the farmers, Chevy Chase and Madeline Smith in Funny Farm, uh, when they get together with their neighbors, they all conspire to convince a, a home buying couple in, into a false reality. I mean, that's how how set up these three archetypes are in every one of George Roy Hill's films. Now, in this one, obviously, Waldo Pepper falls into the liar category. But as per usual, you know, nobody is a bigger dreamer yeah, I than would, Pepper. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I Knowing this thesis, this George Roy Hill mm-hmm. uh, kind of consistency of yeah. theme of mm-hmm. the dreamer, the liar, the con man, you know, I was really conscious of it. And I was watching Waldo be the dreamer and literally saying to himself, like, it should have been me. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, that, that's one of the lines when after he gets called out by uh, Bo Svensson's mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. and after Susan Sarandon and him are walking away, it's not, Waldo's not upset necessarily so much that he got caught. Mm-hmm. It's that it should have been him. He was meant yeah. to die. Mm-hmm. When he goes and sees, um, I, I think her name is Maud, his his childhood sweetheart, you know, he, he, he basically promised her, he, he probably took her virginity. On the uh-huh. promise of I'm going to war to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then because of the circumstances, he didn't die. Mm-hmm. He was on maintenance that day. He was doing this. He was doing this. whatever happened. He missed the dogfight with Ernst Kessler. Yeah, he was robbed of his glory. He was robbed of his glory. And when he comes back, he apologizes to her. Like, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I should have died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He even offers, you know, we can get married. And she's like, she knows that that's not going to work. She knows that he was supposed to die. And in mm-hmm. fact, everything that he's doing is so that he can die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, some kind of hero's death. Hill's characters, whether they're dreamers, conmen, or liars, they always look back to a time that the lead characters fetishize and think that, the, oh, this was the real time. This was when things really mattered, as opposed to today when things don't matter as much. The Sting is actually the only movie that actually takes place in that mythical time of the past that the characters fetishize. But even they talk about the big con as if it happened more often than it happens now. That's what the big deal is doing the big con again. It's a young guy wanting to do the big con with the old guy who's Mm -hmm. the established one who's been around. In the butch casting of the Sundance Kid, back in the times when uh, uh, safes were made out of wood, yeah, <laughs> were made for aesthetic value as opposed to made out of metal to keep robbers out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was supposed to look like a nice cabinet. Yeah. That's how it was supposed to look like. <laughs> you know, the little the two kids in uh, a little romance, same thing with yeah. their their idea of Mary Barry Browning, and you know, uh, and. Uh, it, the, they're looking at their romance through the movies and yes, stuff. You know, like exactly. And through poetry, poetry and, and through and legend. The past, yeah. While they deal with this old-timey thing in, in uh, defining the characters, The Great Waldo Pepper is the first movie that's about its protagonist's deal with this past. And his trying to his recreate his insubstantial recreation of a past that probably never existed. That he didn't live that past 
in some ways is not his fault. And though he is kind of lying about it because he, but he's also he lying wished, about it. Like I said, I think there's a question. There's a path. It's a past that never truly existed. Not his way of thinking about it. Well, well, his way of thinking about it was he was meant to die. Yeah, you know, while at war. No, but Waldo Pepper never talks about the 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 pilot that crashed and lost his left arm. All right, you know, and has a fucked up foot and is uh, and is hobbling around. And he you talks know. about the glory days. Yeah, the, he does the glory talk, of the. He doesn't of talk about those fucking guys. There's nobody either, nobody there, wants there's, nobody there's, wants to hear about that. Yeah, there, you either <laughs> no, but it, but again, it's a false version of chivalry right? because you either you either uh, are the winner or you're the loser, and both of the, and either one of those are fine by him. <laughs> well, I mean, the movie is absolutely about chivalry. Mm-hmm. In fact, Ernst Kessler's character when he's introduced by Dillhofer because mm-hmm. he's in Dillhofer's circus at one point, Flying mm-hmm. Circus, mm-hmm. is the Black Knight. Of Germany. Uh-huh. And then in the end, when they're having their final fight together because they don't have guns mm-hmm. and they come charging at each other in front of everybody, like five feet off the ground, flying mm-hmm. at each other and, mm-hmm. and semi collide their wings together. Mm-hmm. That's jousting that they're doing. Oh, absolutely. It's jousting. They're yeah. knights. These yeah. are knights of the air. I guess what I'm getting at is Waldo, I think, is the most chivalrous honorable and truthful person in the movie, despite the lie. Yeah, okay. And that's because when Newt comes to him, the guy who, mm-hmm. um, his old squadron commander, who's now the head of the CAA, the- um, <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's the CAA. They, oh, it, yeah. Weirdly enough, it's CAA. Oh. They keep mentioning CAA ruining the world. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like closing up the skies and, you know, the commerce is taking over mm-hmm. and it's uh, the Civil Aeronautics Authority. <laughs> Which is underneath the Department of Commerce. Uh Like when finally the reality of their world is that the skies are going to be turned into highways for passengers and for mail. Well, yeah. And and he's offered a position. He's been banned. Basically, he's not going to be able to fly for life because of the accidents that have occurred over the course of the movie, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about. the, the, The great stunt scenes. When Newt offers him a job, he offers him, he says, at least, you know, you uh, you could be a clerk for Mm -hmm. me. At least Mm -hmm. you'd still be in aviation. Waldo looks at him like he doesn't understand him and he turns it down Mm -hmm. because he's true to himself Mm -hmm. in the end. He's not that guy. He's not going to take a job at Western Mm -hmm. flying, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, passengers around. What he's been looking for is his death since the very beginning. It's almost not his fault that he didn't get it. He wasn't allowed to have his proper death at the hands of. Of well, the mythical villain of the Black Knight, yeah, and and the you know, and the movie is also doing a thing that like uh, uh, westerns would do a little bit, where it's talking about how um, it exists, you know, it exists in a time before there were rules and regulations when it comes to flying. So you could really be a barnstormer, you could really be a daredevil. You could you know, America of nineteen twenties, you know, when yeah. the world when it was still open and there yeah. was still opportunity and there was still freedom. And so all of a sudden, like you know, so now that you know, now they have to establish rules, and then you know, and the, those those rules come to bear. So it's similar to like the cowboys that used to ride the planes and all of a sudden then they're, then they're uh, forced to face with Bob wire. Yeah. And they see him, they just see it as the ruining of the country of these, this Bob wire showing up all over the land and saying, I can't go here and I can't go there. You were changing the world. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to change the world. You won't be able to do this. You won't be able to do that. And even after he's been banned, he goes back to Dillhofer mm-hmm. um, who's, who's received a year long suspension mm-hmm. and the suspension is coming up and he goes back and he meets with Dillhofer and he's like, hey, I could fly under another name or whatever. He's like, you don't get it. Like, you know, there's not an outfit in this entire area that'll take you. Uh, but maybe the CA hasn't set itself up in the West yet. Maybe you try Hollywood. Mm-hmm. 
which is yeah. the ultimate place for a guy who cannot live the reality he was meant to have, yeah, yeah. but to end up in the land of dreams mm-hmm. in Hollywood, a land of complete artifice, mm-hmm. which is where he encounters Ernst Kessler in the end. Yeah. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the midpoint of the movie. Um, they've all joined a flying circus. He uh, has become friends with this uh, yeah, he, they, they, kind of the foil, his rival. Yeah, they have, they've developed a team. It, it's like he has a, a, a rival barnstormer in the, in the guise of uh, Bo Svensson, who's fun in the movie, and they work well together. And his uh, girlfriend, which is uh, Susan Sarandon, then they realize that they can get more of the, the pieces of the pie rather than fighting each other for uh, a slice if they just all join together. The two planes... They can work out bigger stunt sequences yeah. and they can work out more uh, dangerous routines and they have two minds working on it because they're both really, really good pilots. And, uh, and they, they find success. They find success uh, going throughout the South and the Midwest doing these aerial stunts with the three of them as a team. Yeah. And, uh, but it's never enough for the audiences. Dill Hoffer needs more. Dill Hoffer wants more. We've got to have more. You know, uh, the audiences want sex. They want to see death. They want to see daring do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they turn to Su- Susan Sarandon. And they're like, what if, you know, wing walking isn't enough? Well, I think they did when they start when uh, uh, wing walking with, with, with Pepper doing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and he does it and he wor- it works out really good. Then they're like, okay, well, what's next? What's next? Yeah. Well, let's get the girl to do it in a, in a sexy dress. Yeah. And, and the wind <laughs> will blow her clothes off. And Walter's yeah. like, wind doesn't blow my clothes off. Why would it blow her clothes off? <laughs> well, because you're wearing a brown leather jacket. <laughs> and so, um, and, and it's it's actually an amazing, fantastic moment for Susan Sarandon because the moment they entertain the idea, this is a girl who was raised going to the movies. Uh-huh. Basically, the moment they entertained the idea even remotely mm-hmm. that she could become like, you know, mm-hmm. an actress in like it. a Pearl White, you know, the perils of Pauline. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah you, uh-huh. you could be doing this. Suddenly you can see it in her eyes. Suddenly she becomes like a diva. Uh-huh. I want my name in life. I am the it girl of the skies. And, you know, both Vincent is like, well, I don't know. You're like, maybe we want to like, uh, it's a little dangerous. No, you know, she's she, very, she's very funny at that. She thing. jumps you, into You it. like her so much. And I think Susan Sarandon is probably the most like likable person in this cast yeah. of, so far. Well, it, it, she's, well, she's beautiful. She's innocent. She really looks she's funny. Time period. Her eyes are so big. Does she gets the funny, funny voice. She brings them together. <laughs> and there's even this wonderful moment when she brings them together, when she drives Bo Svensson, uh, yeah, yeah. Axel Olsen to Waldo. And the two of them are talking at the airplane and they kind of don't want to be together. They kind of like dislike each other. Like yeah, he's yeah. a liar. And uh-huh. I don't like him. And they, uh-huh. neither of them like each other. They've kind of been sabotaging each other up until now. And she's in the background yelling like something like, you know, you're both starving. Why not work together? Yeah. And, and he does this throughout the entire movie. The way that George Roy Hill frames it is he, he actually places her on the wing in that yeah, moment. She's yeah. in the background uh-huh. you know, of that scene, but the way he's lined up the shot, mm-hmm. she's literally sitting on the wing. That's her destiny yeah, is yeah. that wing. It's, uh, I mean, he foreshadows it mm-hmm. and he foreshadows it again mm-hmm. and again. And then finally we're in the moment where Axel is flying her around and she does a little wing walk and she goes out onto the wing and they go and they do, they fly through town. And at this point, it has to be said uh, that this guy, Frank Tallman, who mm-hmm. was the aerial stunts uh, coordinator on this film, who flew that plane through that town. Fact, oh, no, you're talking about he kind of threads the needle where he he drives down the air. Uh, he flies the, down through the center of and town. And he's, he's, he's got to get, the, he's gotta get the, uh, the wings in between the telephone poles or something like that. He, All right, you know, the, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, and he's crashing the plane into the town. Nobody who doesn't fly one of these airplanes can understand how insanely difficult that was to do because these things Mm -hmm. 
are one they were old planes even even well, then. one thing you, one thing you haven't mentioned which is i think what i saw from reading a bunch of things on on the film is the idea that one part of the reason that george Hill wanted to do this was because he's a pilot and he was really really into uh, this stuff and i think he's actually in many of the cases he's actually flying the camera plane he flew the camera plane while another, while somebody that way he could watch what was happening and kind of line yeah. line things up sort of direct, he, direct and, it so to and speak and he could like okay well, look i'm going to risk getting this close because i know one i'm good enough to do it and i know i need my shot as opposed to going through an interpreter. No, get closer, get closer. George Roy Hill would fly <laughs> versions of these airplanes across country for fun in between movies. Like yeah. that was his passion. I mean, this movie is George Roy Hill's, I think, ultimate film. Mm-hmm. Some people might say, oh, The Sting is a better no, movie. I would, no, this is a better movie. Or that is a better movie. For its oeuvre, for his thesis and his oeuvre. This, this is, is it. To a fault. <laughs> yeah. this is, to a fault, it's his ultimate film. After flying through the town, like, I uh, think everybody's excited. Like, uh, everybody in the town sees this is like, wow, this is going to be great. They fly back up. He's like, okay, come back, come uh-huh. back. And Susan Sarandon's frozen uh-huh. on the wing. Yeah. She can't move. She's paralyzed mm-hmm. in fear. And he and he can't get her off. And he can't land, as Waldo says, because he'll cartwheel if yeah, she does, because yeah, yeah. she's uh-huh. off balancing the plane. And so Waldo, in that moment, comes up with... A harrowing stunt Mm -hmm. that is just absolutely incredible, absolutely fucking unbelievable, which is just the transfer from one plane to another, climbing up and standing on the wings of of an airplane and transferring onto the wings of another Mm -hmm. so that he can attempt to uh, bring her off. Yeah. It's harrowing. I watched it again this morning uh, before coming in. Just that uh, moment is, is... I was gasping while watching it. I've seen it dozens of times. And the tragedy is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. He reaches for her. He calls to her. She looks to him. She's clearly like reverted to some kind of infantile state where she's just like, I'm just going to cling to what I know is safe, which is to cling to the, Uh the, the struts of the, uh, of the wing. And then when she finally does reach for him, their hands don't even touch. Uh, She slips out of the frame and Waldo is left kneeling with his hand. Yeah. Unable to catch her. And yeah, like, fact, like like newspaper. She's just now, blown, blown away when she lets go. Now, when we first talked about this, you talked about audience reactions. Uh-huh. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? What, well, what, that, uh, what that fucking did to audiences well, to have yeah. to have Susan Sarandon, who they love. She's like really the probably the one that you can identify with. Okay, well, okay. Historically and for me, <laughs> and as an audience member for myself, yeah, apparently my reaction lined up with the multiples of audiences reaction when the film came out was everybody's really enjoying the movie and until Susan Sarandon's death and then she dies. Anybody can admire the realism of it. Everyone can admire the fact that they didn't play it safe, but at the same time, uh, you can't put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube. That tragedy hits like a real tragedy. And I don't think the movie had earned that level of tragedy. And so thus, I'm never really able to recover from that point on. That's And that's just kind of where I'm coming from. I'm never able to quite enjoy the movie as much ever again because of that tragedy. And I think a lot of audiences felt that way. And that's what and Roy Hill talked about that, uh, you know. Um, you know, um, William Goldman has talked about And Goldman's talked about it. He's talked about it as well. And it it makes my skin curl when I hear him talk about, you know, all that we needed was a shot 
of Susan Sarandon in a pond waving <laughs> like afterwards. <laughs> like she fell from the plane and landed in a pond. Yeah. And it yeah. all would have been okay. And the audiences would have liked the movie and we could have moved on and made lots of money. And it would have been a successful film. Well, I don't agree with that either. <laughs> well, I definitely don't agree with it I, because he's wrong. He's wrong because though he wrote the script, I mean, this is George Roy Hill's movie. Yes. This is his story. Mm-hmm. He under, he understands flying. He understands the themes uh, that he's um, chasing, which are courage, honor, and chivalry among among these yeah, men. Yeah, but you know, the, the, there's something that actually makes me really kind of get a kick out of George Roy Hill. Uh, he has said similar things. Uh, oh, we lost him. You know, I mean, just talking about uh, in an audience way. Hey, no, we lost him. After we did that, we lost him. And I, and and he would like I'm I'm paraphrasing this stuff, but he's like you know, I can make all the cases of why that's the way to go in a in a uh, uh, interesting story sense. But you either take the audience along with you or you don't. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I lost them and I never quite got them again. And I think there's actually something kind of cool about George Roy Hill. Well, he's able to actually do everything he wants, and so he does it, and he accepts the responsibility and he respects the consequences of doing what he wants. But he doesn't think he's ultimately successful because his job is to take the audience with him. And so when he absolutely, for all the right reasons, alienates him, he considers that a failure because his job is to deliver the audience a good fucking movie as far as they're concerned. It's an altruism towards the audience that you don't hear much from uh, artists. Or or too much of these days. Yeah. Everybody's not. Look, I would be. Look, they're they're fucking idiots, all right? They wanted to be spoon-fed a bunch of bullshit. I showed them how it fucking is, and if they couldn't handle it, well, fucking don't see it. Go see something else. I, That's what I would say. I actually <laughs> I actually don't really fully believe the audience was lost at that moment. I think the audience is lost afterwards with the death of his friend, uh, Ezra, the guy who's designed the I'm plane. I'm sure they read a bunch of preview cards and <laughs> said the minute the fucking girl died is when well, I, I loved it until the girl fucking died. I'm th- sure that was like literally written on like 500. <laughs> the thing is that's reinforced by the second death. Yeah. And the second death is the, the point of no return. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the, you well, know, that's when the movie commits to being a bummer from that point. On. Well, the movie had committed to being a bummer from the very beginning is, is what I'm getting at. The movie has to well, be a that's bummer. Your, that's your twisting reason. The movie, the, well, no, it's not a twisted reading. This is George Roy Hill. This is not uh, a twisted reading. You're <laughs> twisting the reading. I'm twisting the reading. <laughs> I mean, this is a movie about the. This is a movie about the death of freedom, about yes. the death of being in the clouds, the death of dreaming, and the death of dreamers in America. This is the movie. This is where the Department of Commerce has taken over, and the skies are going to be turned into a business mm-hmm. where you go to, as as Ernst Kessler says, to where I find. Courage, honor, and chivalry, that's in the clouds. When I'm on Earth, not so much. I'm 40K in debt. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. As far as being the perfect George Roy Hill film, uh, uh, where 
he takes his themes and actually is able to truly dramatize his, he's dramatizing his theme. His theme isn't something that's hanging out on the edges of a narrative he already is trying to tell. No, this is his theme taken and brought down into a dramatic, dramatic interpretation of it, of the actual theme itself. And I think it has the problem when directors do that. When they finally make a movie where the theme itself is the narrative, it, it goes too far. It's too on the money. And it's better hanging out in the margins. It's better hanging out uh, in the, in the footnotes and in the corners. And well, I, like the loved one, uh-huh. this is the movie you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to make an audience satisfying film after you've done Tom Jones or after you've done um, The Sting. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to make a movie that satisfies you. You're but, supposed to take that power and do what you're really not supposed to do. That's when you're supposed. Oh no, to- I get I like I get all that, and like I I'm applauding them for for doing just that. But like for instance, in the second half, that is where the theme is now dramatized. The fact that Kessler is such a figure of faded glory. I mean, he seems, as Pauline Kael said, he seems to be posing for that famous painting of the old Indian on the on the uh, the final sunset, the old Indian on the cliff. He seems to be posing for that photo, <laughs> that painting in every shot. <laughs> All right, you know, and uh, and then the fact that now he finally gets to uh, live the battle as they're created in the movies, but then they're. So pious about it all because because th- this is the shit that means something to George Roy Hill. So if he's going to actually dramatize his theme, he's going to over-dramatize his theme. You know, it's funny. I, I can watch The Sting and I can watch Slapshot and World According to Garp and any, any, of, any of this man's great works. Yeah. You know, all movies that I- I, I have defended Funny Farm as one of the great last movies. It's, right? <laughs> it's a great film. It's yeah. a very funny movie. And-, mm-hmm. and, and this here's this guy who could really walk mm-hmm. into almost any genre, any kind of film, and it's still his movie. Yeah. <laughs> when when Waldo has had everything taken away from him, which is basically his freedom, he's pushed outside of reality. He's pushed away from the coming reality to the only place where there's any kind of hope, and that's Hollywood. And I think it's really interesting. The very first, the in fact, the only shot, the very first shot of Hollywood, it's the only stock shot in the entire movie. It's yeah. like an old stock shot. It's the only artificial mm-hmm. uh, element that they didn't shoot for the movie that was just stock footage of the Paramount Gates. Look, and, I and look, I agree. The narrative of, of of going to Hollywood and 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 doing a von Sternberg's Last Command, all right, yeah. where you get to actually live out the. Uh, we talked about the Last Command. Yeah, I yeah. got out of the theater watching the film, where you get to live out this event that actually happened in your past. That is terrific. I just think they're too pious about it. There's a lot of juggling going on in the end. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily, at least I don't think is obviously stated Mm -hmm. up front. And part of that is how much of a liar Ernst Kessler is. He's also been living this lie. He's been living the lie that that Waldo has been telling well, Kessler's, about him. Kessler's my biggest problem with it because, like I said, it's just it's, oh, he's it's my a, favorite. It's a postcard for faded glory. He's not really a character. He is he is the theme. He's not a real character. He's just sort of this poster for a knight without armor. He makes a point of mentioning this was like eight minutes mm-hmm. in the air for me. Mm-hmm. It was like an eight minute uh, time in the skies that I almost don't even remember because I was too busy doing everything else. And now it's my entire legend is based on it. That's what he's lamenting is basically it's not real for him either. When Waldo Pepper starts telling, recounting the story to him, was that when you, you know, you saluted him and he looks at him and you realize, or 
what Kessler is effectively doing in that moment is he never saluted him. Mm-hmm. He didn't do the salute. The salute is the lie that everybody tells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The courage and the honor and chivalry mm-hmm. that he's discussing, those really are in the clouds only. Yeah, yeah. And everything else on the ground is just a lie. And this moment where Kessler is basically talking about what a great lie his own thing is. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, when they even say about, you know, don't you care about how they're telling your story? And he's like, it doesn't matter. It's all lies anyway. Mm-hmm. It's We're in Hollywood. And it's funny because the director, Werfel, played by Roderick Cook, who I think is fantastic, mm-hmm. who I think Peter O'Toole, his uh, character in Stuntman, is based on. Oh, really? Oh, uh-huh. I mean, the music from Stuntman. It's like almost, music, it's yeah, almost yeah. Henry Mancini. They're yeah. shooting a kind of World War One. No, they are shooting. And there's wind walking. Uh, wind walking. walking. And Peter you're, O'Toole. And you're going to do, do a dance. You're going to do a jig. Yeah, a Charleston. Uh, a jig. Uh, no, a Charleston. And uh, and that director who's walking around in jawed person and everything, doing like uh, mm-hmm. uh, practically doing Peter O'Toole uh-huh. says anybody can supply actor accuracy, artists supply truth. <laughs> and then he walks away. Uh-huh. And he's not doing either. <laughs> like, he's not doing either. This it's almost like this movie is a confession mm-hmm. by um, by George Roy Hill about you know because. He talks about audiences and what audiences want, and he shows a little bit of dis- this is him. It's more him than William Goldman writing the moments right. that happened. William Goldman may have put the pen to paper, but it was George Roy Hill who basically had Waldo Pepper, when his friend Ezra dies, get into an airplane and terrorize the bloodthirsty audience who is just watching his friend burn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he gets in that plane and he terrorizes them. Mm-hmm which is why he gets uh, booted from the skies. Ultimately mm-hmm. I cry every time I watch this movie. Mm-hmm. I cried when we saw it together. I cried this morning when I watched parts of it. I come from an aviation family. Mm-hmm. I actually was uh, named after a pilot, Roger Roberts. Here's a picture of him. We can put on the website oh. who died burning in a, in an air crash in a, uh, in a Boeing Stearman biplane. While he was uh, doing a cross-country solo flight, my grandfather was a pilot. He was a a Pan Am pilot eventually, forged all the routes over the Pacific in the early days before there were routes to fly over the Pacific. He flew a P-26, which was the first single-wing solid-body plane around 1934. I choke up while watching this movie because it's about these terrible events, most of them which are just accidents that are happening to, to somebody who is just trying to fulfill their passions. The things that happen are so irreversible to mm-hmm. Waldo, the accidents that occur and his inability to recover from them. And he is a dreamer and he doesn't want to live a life of just being a journeyman flyer. Mm-hmm. Ernst Kessler realizes this in him. He lo- he He sees it in him. When he realizes that he was one of those boys that he Mm -hmm. killed Mm -hmm. because he just says like these kids, sure, they were brave, but they were stupid Mm -hmm. and I could kill them because I'm a better flyer. And so I did. Mm -hmm. I I killed most of them. And you kind of realize he's not really proud of the things he did, Mm -hmm. of the uh, stuff that he did during war. And what he sees in Waldo is Waldo was meant to be one of those guys and he got cheated out of it. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, he's going to give that to him. And he arranges with the director Mm -hmm. that Waldo will fly. Yeah. You know, the the, uh, Brown is the character he's going under at that Mm -hmm. point. 
the name that he's using at that point. Which but, is the name of the supposed guy who shot down the Red Baron, Brown. Oh, yeah. No, that's interesting. But it's, I, but it's been proven that's not the case anymore. But for, for years, that was the legend. You know, was pro- the, proven by Wikipedia. A, a, Can- a Canadian <sighs> farmer named Brown is the one who finally brought down the Red Baron, but that's not true. <laughs> it was actually- it's a cool a, story, though. It was one, yeah, it was like he got the credit for it for years, for like 50 years. But then they just did a, a thing where it turned out that there were three Australian soldiers on the ground firing up, and they even were able to determine which of the Australian soldiers actually shot them down. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They were actually able to. <laughs> <laughs> he was shot down from the ground, ultimately. Yeah, he was shot down from the ground. I, I, the scene where Ezra dies, I like. even thinking about it now, the moment when he crashes and they show Waldo running, uh-huh. and they do this reverse tracking shot with him, it's a futile run. There's nothing he's going to be like, it's, there's very little he's going to be able to do. And it, it's, it's such a beautiful, perfect shot. Like, mm-hmm. because, because they, they don't actually crash an airplane in the shot, but mm-hmm. they make the trick your eye into believing you've crashed it because mm-hmm. we're following him. And then they pan with it and we see the second after the crash. Yeah, no. And then, and, 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 and Walter has to do something terrible. All right. Uh, he has to do for mercy. He yeah. has to do a mercy killing of his friend, which is, and, 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 so that his friend won't burn because burning to death in an airplane is the worst. They they mention it numerous times that you know you'd rather jump to your death yeah, yeah. and fall than burn alive. Right. Yeah. And that moment is so hard for me to watch. I mean, I choke up watching um, um, Susan Sarandon slip and fall from the airplane. Mm-hmm. It's it's but, it, it, sound, but it's Ezra. Who, but it also but it, well, those were the those were the big moments. But it also sounds like just. What George Roy Hill is grappling with in the character of Waldo Pepper, both for the character of Waldo Pepper, and then what that character says about George Roy Hill, and then the different dilemmas he puts puts Waldo Pepper through, especially in the second half, that that's what moves you. Yeah. Yeah, you have these you have these big emotional scenes, but 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 what gives you what makes it one of your favorite movies. Yeah. You know what it is about this movie also? It's it's that it's about loss. Mm-hmm loss of the American lifestyle, the American kind of uh, freedom Mm -hmm. of that freedom of the expanse into the West. Um, It's about loss of your own destiny. Mm -hmm. It's about, there's so much loss happening in the movie Mm -hmm. that it just, it affects me. It affects me really intensely Mm -hmm. because it's these things that are lost forever. The world of exploration, you know, at least on terrestrially, Mm -hmm isn't necessarily coming back. Like the world of barnstorming isn't necessarily coming back. All we can do now are facsimiles of, mm-hmm. of that. And, you know, when I watch it, I feel those losses really greatly, really intensely. And I, I relate them to myself also. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I transport myself into this movie, I transport myself into Waldo and, um, and I, and I feel his failings. Like I feel as much of a sham liar as he is. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I'm so much a liar. It's everything I'm saying is genuine. Everything I'm saying is, you know, my beliefs, everything I'm saying is like the dreams that I had of, of what I, you know, the artifice of, of who I think I am and of, of what reality is. And it's only the fault of the world that it doesn't meet up to that. And by, and by the way, as much as like all the talk of them, of the stunt flying through Elgin, Texas, which no doubt is crazy to, uh, to have pulled that off that crash at the carnival when Waldo, mm-hmm. after scaring everybody in his plane, then he crashes 
they have a biplane like in the shot flying with the audiences all around them <laughs> with yeah. people, yeah, extras yeah. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, right, yeah. The plane flying through, flying into like, like, uh, streamers and, uh, you know, hanging flags and things. And then apparently he came in too hot and missed where he was supposed to crash and hit a real pole. Uh-huh. And George Roy Hill said, you know, I mean, nobody died on the making of this movie and amazingly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but George Roy Hill said, you know, oh, it was a much better looking shot than I could have ever hoped for. No, no, it was actually, <laughs> no, what was actually really cool was uh, how, like, in all of George Roy Hill's uh, uh, interviews about the movie, the thing that he's always crowing about is how they were able to capture flying sequences that he doesn't think anyone else would be able to capture because of his own prowess as a as a pilot. Now, I just happened to find myself uh, going to the movies the other day, as I sometimes do with my daughter, and we saw the trailer or a teaser, rather, for I think it's the new Mission Impossible movie. Uh-huh. Is it? And uh, it's basically Tom Cruise wing walking uh, <laughs> on an airplane, talking to the audience. Hey, I'm going to do it in a new movie. It's going to be pretty intense. And then, he's like, <laughs> and then he flies off. On See the- at the movie. You see at the movies, and he flies off on the, on the, on the airplane, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Tom Cruise is a great Waldo Pepper fan. <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah. I, <laughs> or somebody. I is. think I think I think it's safe to say he's a great Waldo Pepper. If fan. Anybody if anybody's is, a great Waldo Pepper fan, other than you, it would be Tom Cruise. And if anybody's <laughs> going to be able to match what they did, what Frank Tallman did uh, as a as a pilot, and George Ray Hill did as a, as a pilot filmmaker, it's probably Tom Cruise and his team. Yeah, probably. Uh, they'll probably do something in line with Impossible, <laughs> <coughs> which we see in this film. You know very well, for completely shallow different reasons, I had my own Waldo Pepper story at Video Archives. <laughs> All right, now- he had a greater reason for doing it, but I had a pretty good reason for doing it too. It's uh, the same reason, ultimately. Well, it, well, it's coming from the same. It's definitely jumping off from the same spot. Yeah. All right. It should have been me. Uh, yeah. Idea. It could have been you. It should have been you. Exactly. And and if you can believe it in your in yourself, mm-hmm. and you can convince other people, then it is you. Well, here's the thing: is back in the days before IMDb. Actors would would routinely lie on their resume because you know there'd be There's no way to no way know. to source it. Yeah, you say you know uh, you were on this Mannix episode and you na- give the name of the episode and the character you played. How are they gonna yeah, watch what, it? Were they, what are they gonna research it? Yeah, there weren't like DVDs of uh, Mannix season four like laying around, and it was just kind of known, especially before you've done anything. You couldn't have, you can't write SAG if you haven't if you weren't in SAG. But other than that. You had a little bit of latitude to create shit, and it was, and they even talk about it in in uh, in acting books at that time. And they go, "Well, you just have to know what you're talking about." And the truth is, when you would talk to teachers, and they go, "No, you kind of commit so much; it's almost as if you did do it." Yeah. And so I came up with a couple of uh, uh, B movie titles that didn't exist. One, I remember one was Drag Race No Stop, All right. and I played a character named Mag Wheeler. Yeah, but I had like a whole little story about how the movie came about and 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 like how I got the audition and this and that and the other. And then uh but there's but I knew I had to put two known movies and they couldn't have been SAG movies. So the two movies I chose were Dawn of the Dead and uh Jean-Luc Godard's uh, King Lear. That's right. That he did with Because like, everybody was pictures. in it. That was your uh reasoning behind that is yeah. everyone was in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was like everyone was in it and no one will ever fucking watch it. Yeah, no, right? one will, so, no one will watch it. Everyone's in it and nobody knows who else was in it because there was such chaos while yeah, making yeah. it. So the thing is, I put in um, Dawn of the Dead because 
back when they made Dawn of the Dead, there's a, a young guy in the movie. There's a, one of the motorcycle guys. He's got shaggy hair like I had at the time. And he's like got a Tommy gun and he's in the, uh, the sidecar yeah. of uh, the uh, sidecar and the motorcycle apparatus. And guy doesn't really look like me. He looks more like Don Johnson than he looks like me. But he uh, he looks like he could be me. He has the same kind of brown hair. He's wearing uh, a leather jacket, which you wore at the time yeah, all the time. Yeah, I was wearing leather all the time. And we were more or less the same age. You know, I think he's obviously older, all right, but nevertheless. And he had a kind of mop Beatles-like yeah, mop he had the hair. Yeah, he had the mop hair that I had. Yeah. Yeah, and the same kind of brown and everything. And uh, like you could imagine me in that role if you've seen this guy. So that's all my resume and whatever. So I start working at Video Archives only to find out that these guys are like the biggest George Romero fans in yeah, the world. You stumbled into yeah. like- <laughs> Not only is Roger like a George Romero fan, he bought a, a stock in, in Laurel Entertainment when he was a boy with, with his yeah, with birthday what, money. With what little money I had, I would put it into Laurel Entertainment he, stock. Yeah, about $500 worth of Laurel Entertainment stock. And then when they did uh, uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series, it became $1,000. Yeah, the stock, the company got bought by Spelling Entertainment. My yeah, yeah. stock's like- like split and tripled and like quadded. And <laughs> the next thing I knew, I had like thousands of dollars and I was like, whoa. And I met Aaron Spelling and I mm. told him the story and he's like, yeah, you're a great kid. Yeah. yeah. And that's <laughs> just him wanting to support George Romero. Yeah. Right, you yeah. Know? Um, so I was sort of like, okay, do I tell these guys about me being in Dawn of the Dead? Because I'm not in Dawn of the Dead. All right. But should I tell these? I go, well, they know I'm not in fucking Dawn of the Dead. All right. They, they, this is obviously before they knew me, but that's just impossible. And they're going to realize it doesn't look like me that much. All right. It suggests me, but it doesn't look like me. It's just crazy that I would be in their favorite movie. Well, I did it as an acting exercise. If I can sell them, if I can actually have them believe it, <laughs> if I can convince no, them. No, I never thought I can get you guys to believe it. But if I got you to entertain the idea so that you couldn't just not not believe it. You convinced me of it. Yeah. That, that, like, Jerry, I think, was the biggest Doubting Thomas of it. But yeah, no, no. His brother, Steve, was absolutely. Or no, maybe uh, it was Steve. Well, Steve was just a big sourpuss. Uh, like, no. no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jerry was uh, Jerry's probably the least of the group uh, of, your, of the real video archives guys. But he still kept it open. The idea, the the win is for you to consider it. Yeah. For you to consider it might, may, may have been true. And then I go, well, if I do that, then that's just the best acting exercise of all. Because one, these guys knows that I, sh these guys know this movie by heart. And obviously that's not fucking me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just get down to it. It's not me. <laughs> And I got you guys every, well, for years. I for, for years for three years for three years. You put it up there, and we stop framed it. <laughs> we literally using because it should have been me, like Waldo Pepper. Yeah, it should have been, been me. It should have been George Romero wishes it fucking was me. You, we would stop frame it, and you were like, "See, it's me. I'm wearing that jacket, and 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 shit like that." And I'd, I'd be like, "Well," and, and Scott was there also, and we were like 
studying and it's like is that well it was a while ago he looks too old but yes uh, i'm older i'm older in that movie than but, i'm five years later but the screen adds years <laughs> you know it's like we were i was going back He's and hanging around all these tough guys so well, he looks bigger and older <laughs> i didn't understand like what the win was for you to make such an outrageous and seemingly useless lie <laughs> like, of this one that was the win but it was it, it was the win and it was like this challenge but you used to do things like that all the time you're like i wonder if i can get away with this i wonder if i can get roger my to life go- was fucking boring all I, right I, I so wonder, i came up with all kinds of shit <laughs> i wonder if i can get roger to uh to keep that sign at the gay section in the gay section hi i'm roger uh, <laughs> i'd like to suggest a few movies for you <laughs> i wonder if i can get roger to go visit my girlfriend Lori while she while she's working at the pumpkin patch <laughs> i think roger might like you i didn't like her you're just fucking with me <laughs> you're just trying to see okay, but this if you can fu- manipulate things okay <laughs> this wasn't so much fucking with you this was fucking with all of you. Well, this was this was proof of concept. <laughs> and again, prove, the, uh, prove, uh, proving my acting prowess. Yeah, this was proof of concept. Because if you could convince us, then there ain't no casting director alive. That's, that's for sure. That would be any different than us. Yeah, I mean, that would be any more you, uh, discerning. Who should know better? <laughs> well, then again, like I wanted to believe you. I want. That, yeah. And that's that's the thing about Roger is Roger wants to believe. <laughs> no, I got to tell you. Okay, three years later, I eventually told Jerry, and Jerry was like. I knew that wasn't you, but I'm kind of bummed now. <laughs> I mean, I knew it wasn't you, but actually having you say it is like a real fucking bummer. <laughs> so what happens was, uh, once I did Reservoir Dogs, one of those acting resumes that I thought had long since went away, my manager still had one, so she sent it out. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, people thought that I was in Godard's King Lear and Dawn of the Dead. And so in one of the movies on TV editions of Leonard Maltin's movies on TV, when it does uh, uh, the King Lear thing. Oh, and look for a quick cameo by a very young Quentin Tarantino. All right. So again, that's almost like I might as well have been in the fucking movie if Leonard Maltin is meant is, is It's now official. It's in it print. In movies on TV. <laughs> the lie gets pushed forward. Then George Romero hired me to be one of the radio voices in uh, you know, one of the found footage, uh, 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 I don't remember, uh, Diary of the Dead? Diary yeah. of the Dead. Diary that, was of the the, Dead. that was the yeah. one. So he hired me to be one of the radio voices. So thus, I eventually was a cast member. Listen, I- Hired a, by Romero, all right, to do a thing. And uh, so that reality was created. I remember at one point, and I can't even like remember a perfect, why. Like a perfect George Roy Hill character. I <laughs> lied to somebody about knowing Emilio Estevez before I was in the film business, <laughs> of all things. And I can't remember why I, I did this elaborate I remember once lie. You, you once had an elaborate lie of working for uh, Carl Weathers' production company. I'm sure. I'm sure I had that lie as well. <laughs> You did. You used to say I work for. That was how you get onto a lot. You go. I work for the Fortune Dane Production Company. I work. Uh, I'm, right. I'm, I'm Carl Weathers' that assistant. Was when, that was when. Yeah, that was when I was. Uh, that was I'm when Carl I was, Weathers' assistant. I work for the Fortune Dane Production. That company. was when I was a runner at Empire. I used to get all around everywhere. You just tell you because you look up like who's on this lot. That's why you were around me, Roger. You didn't remember saying that Fortune Dane thing, but I remembered you saying. <laughs> well, we're all liars to a certain extent. You know, years went by. I eventually. Uh, like Emilio Estevez saw someone who looked like me, whose name was Roger. He was a TV actor during the Academy Awards season. Uh-huh. And uh, so they they got friendly together and then he got his wires crossed. And in looking up that guy, 
He called me instead. Mm. It's like, hey, I, I just did this movie about, you know, would you like to come down and see it? And I went down and I looked enough like that other guy, that soap opera guy who was like an idealized version of me, uh-huh. that Emilio looked at me and he was like, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> and we became friends. Oh, okay. <laughs> And so the lie became real. You lie enough and it becomes real. So Gala, uh, we're back from break. Um, Why don't you tell us uh, about your thoughts on Great Waldo Pepper? Well, before I get into my thoughts on Great Waldo Pepper, let's talk about this box a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Because there's one part of the box that you guys kind of just like didn't hone in on that. Well, I I mentioned the reflective goggles and I mentioned the yellow. But did you mention what's in the reflective goggles? Yeah, the the plane crashing. I, I, you know what? I'm like, I'm spawn of Avery right now. (laughs) I think he's seeing his own death. Oh. I think when you look at that, I think that's his plane that's Mm. flying. And I think he's witnessing his own death. as the people are running towards him. I think that's what that is. It's a beautiful rendering of him. Wow, that actually makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah. no, wait a minute. How can... He wouldn't be in the background. But how, but you, what's you, weird you is they're running own... toward him, but the crash is behind him. I've looked at this box a zillion times, but I never noticed what was in the goggles. It's until beautiful. we were doing the, the show and I started looking at it. Oh, wow, that's great. So when did you guys first see this movie? My father took me to this movie on its uh, original release, and I saw it at the South Bay um, Cinemas. I didn't see it until about like six years ago, after I read that book, and I went my George Roy Hill kick. Well, I've watched this movie growing up, because my dad obviously loves this movie. When I was growing up, to me, it was kind of a boring film. It's like, dad pops on this movie, and it's like, really slow, it's kind of how I felt about the loved one. I mean, in that episode, I think Roger tells a story that I can barely understand what they're saying when mm-hmm. I was growing up in that movie. And then I had the chance to go see this on film at the New Beverly. Quentin and Roger took me to go see a double feature with The Sting. And it was like a magical experience, especially watching. I had never seen The Sting before. And it was a magical experience seeing them back to back. I cried in the theater watching The Great Waldo Pepper. And I cried again today when we watched it together because there are so many moments in this where I feel are just really touching and unexpected. And it's and much of it is just the power of George Roy Hill and how he's shooting things. You know the, how controlled his his imagery feels, mm-hmm. like when Waldo runs toward that airplane after it's yeah when his friend Ezra is crashed. That shot, I like it builds in my throat as he starts to run and as the camera is running and doing this reverse tracking and we're not seeing what it is. It's that Kubrickian thing where you don't see where you're tracking into. You're, you're looking at your subject desperately trying to get there. I just feel such overwhelming grief and, um, and loss during the, like it's almost irrational how, how emotional this movie uh, affects me. Yeah, and Roger mentioned earlier, like, the the opening of the movie, where it's Waldo and he tells a little boy, like, hey, go get me gas and run yeah. back and forth, and there is no free ride. There's another part of the opening, which Roger didn't mention, which are all of these photographs. The, of, yeah, the, the opening, yeah, the little montage at the The beginning. montage of these photographs. And each photograph is of a pilot, and they each have the year that they lived and they died. The that, pantheon of pilots that... That leads up to Waldo. Yeah. That Waldo is kind of 
an amalgamation of. Okay, so there's four pilots that they show. There's Ormer Locklear, there's Earl Doherty, there's Speed Holman, and there's Ernst Udet. Speed Holman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Ormer Locklear, who I think is Waldo in the movie, basically. Daredevil stunt pilot. He was in the popular Flying Circus. He was actually in The Great Air Robbery, the 1919 movie, mm. and he died in an airplane crash in 1920. <clears throat> if you live doing what you love, there's a good chance you'll die during it, too. Well, spoiler alert, all these guys basically died during crashes. Um, Even Ernest Yield? Um, no, actually, Ernst Udet uh, killed himself. Yeah, actually, that's a very interesting story because he's a guy who flew in both wars, Ernst Udet. Yeah, uh-huh. He, uh, he flew in the First World War as a pilot. He came to the United States and basically did the aerial circus thing, mm-hmm. did his time in Hollywood, flying for Hollywood things. And then World War II came around and he was called back to his country mm-hmm. as part of the Luftwaffe. Yeah, he's got a, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, my favorite of the Riefenstahl Mountain films is the one that co-directed by... Uh, Dr. Robert Frank and uh, uh, G.W. Paps, which mm. is uh, the white hill, uh, the yeah. white hell of uh, Pissapaloo. So Ernst Udet, as Roger said, he was a German pilot that flew during World War One. He's a notable flying ace. He actually had sixty-two confirmed victories in the air. Yeah, so only was... bested by the by Richthofen. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then as Roger said, he came to the United States and he did the circus. And then World War Two comes around and he's called back and uh, to the Luftwaffe. He just wanted to fly, though. That's the thing about Ernst Udet is that he did not want to fly, and he hated the Nazis. Mm -hmm. He just did not like them. He did not care for the administration. And so because of it, he actually killed himself because of what they were going to make him do. He shot himself. He shot himself in 1941. Rather rather than – because his whole thing was about courage, honor. And chivalry. And chivalry. Mm -hmm. It actually gives me, like, shivers thinking about it because – the sentiment in the movie is that, like, they were just children. I was just shooting down children. And those eight minutes, everyone thinks I'm a hero, but not against children. And that's, like, a sentiment that is pulled from the real-life Ernst Udet, yeah, right who did on, yeah. not want to go to war and kill these boys. Mm-hmm. The other pilots that they mentioned, Earl Doherty, um, who I believe Ezra, his friend who builds the planes, is based on. He was an early aviator who built planes, first man in Long Beach to be issued a license to fly. Mm-hmm. He was a stunt pilot. He flew Nellie Holman, who was the first actress to fly in an airplane. Oh, wow. Um, And he also died in a crash. And then lastly, Speed Holman, who I think Axel, um, who Bo Svensson plays, um, he was the record-holding aviator with 1,433 consecutive loops in five hours over the St. Paul airport, the first pilot to be hired by Northwest Airways, fourth person to perform an outside loop, first in a commercial plane, and he died in a crash. (laughs) So all these guys died in a crash. And at the end of the movie, in the credits, Waldo Pepper's picture is right up alongside them. Goldman and Hill, um, you know, in the dialogue for Ernst Kessler in, in that scene, says, you know, Kessler says, uh, when asked, you know, were you scared? He searches and he says, no, everything was in order. The world made total sense. We battled. No lasting advantage. He was brighter. I was smarter. He was faster. I was quicker. Until he hesitated coming out of a turn. His guns had jammed. I could see his fists pounding, trying to make them function, regain function. And I thought, run, Madden, try for the clouds. But he didn't. He came straight for me instead. And I thought, you are very stupid, but you are very brave. So someone else will have to kill you. Is that when you saluted? And that's the moment that's when, the moment. Kessler, when Kessler looks at him. When we were watching this this morning, because that's my favorite scene in the entire movie is Bo Brunden as Ernst Kessler on the bridge. And he's recounting the story. 
And I love that moment because that's when he turns and says, yes, that's when I saluted. And that's the lie. He has to do that for Waldo. He tells him that as for a little him. boy, like basically yeah. he's telling the little boy at the table at the dinner table. Yeah. But what well, does it's he the say? Salute that makes the story. So yeah. without yeah. that, it's just another war story. Yeah. But the greatest part is what he what says did, after. Yeah. What did you do then? I wept. I wept, and that's the truth. Yeah, that's like, the truth. Is he was actually weeping up there for mm-hmm. what he was doing. The stunts in this movie are like top tier, amazing. I don't think this movie could be made today. Like maybe Tom Cruise is like wing walking and like doing. Waldo Pepper, but I don't think you could make this movie today. Well, you would just need, uh, like, I don't like it when people normally say that, but that might be a case where that might be the, the case, unless there is a situation where you have a director who's that much of an aviation whiz as, as George Roy Hill, and you have Robert Redford, who's just completely committed to doing what needs to be done. He was completely committed in, in Downhill Racer, and he learned to do what needed to be done. Same thing here. He's, you know, uh, he's doing it to walk the wing. I think you're totally right. And I mm. knew that uh, George Roy Hill was like a pilot. You don't talk a guy into this. No, he's, he ha- <laughs> he, he, he's got to be down from word go, from well, the very word go. The, the guy who actually did the wing walk, because apparently they couldn't find anybody. Well, actually, he says it right here and uh, at the back of the screenplay book. His name was Ralph Wiggins, and he's 63 years old. And he preferred not to wear a parachute because it was too heavy and uh, could unbalance him. He was the only one I could get among all the stuntmen who would work without a parachute on a top wing. And he used to do it as a kid. And actually that shot of Waldo standing on the wing with his arms outstretched, that's another image that I just, I think is so beautiful. Yeah, And even though when it comes to uh, somebody else did the actual wing walking, Redford does an incredible amount of shit up in the fucking air with what uh, what doesn't seem like any cables that I can see. Yeah, and Bo Svensson. Yeah. When uh, you see Bo Svensson get out on the wing and climb out a little, and then when he comes back and he looks in and he delivers, like, you know, uh, he says, yeah, I didn't like it much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's the funniest, driest routine. Like, I don't even find that line very funny in the screenplay. Yeah. But his delivery of that after actually going out on the after wing. After going out and doing it's it. It's real. It's, it's back, <laughs> back by his terror. Quentin, I think you are right about what you said, that, like, this movie could be made today if there was a director who was a pilot. Because I did, I knew that George Roy Hill was a pilot, but until you said it, I didn't know that he was like actually in the, the plane mm-hmm. operating the camera. Like, that's spectacular. I don't think he's operating the camera. I think he's flying. He's actually he's flying. flying. He's, he's flying, flying the, the camera, camera plane. Crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. That'd, then, be like me, that'd be like me driving the camera car yeah. in the chase in, in, in Death Proof. Or no, the most talented guy in the whole movie is the guy driving the camera car in that fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's only two seats in a lot of these yeah, planes. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got a pilot and you've got another guy who's operating camera. Just like you actually see well, in no, the end like, when, they're shooting, when they're shooting the little movie, you actually see them. They've got like a, a Mitchell BNCR strapped onto that thing. Well, those are some, like 400 pounds. Well, to some degree, you know, similar to the way the camera car driver on Death Proof was, to one degree or another, George Ray Hill is also acting somewhat as camera operator. If I want the camera to get that close and I want this shot, I need to put the plane, yeah. all right, where that guy can get the shot. And if something's going to happen, the buck stops here. Absolutely, yeah. When it comes to this movie... And it's all about dreams. And Quentin talked earlier about how George Roy Hill's characters are the dreamers, the liars, and the con artists. Mm -hmm. I think this is George Roy Hill actualizing his dream through Waldo Pepper. And I, I think that partly because when Waldo takes an assumed name when he goes to Hollywood, he's called George. (laughs) He takes the name George, and it's like there's like actually a 
colored history of directors, of movie directors wanting to be pilots and not being able to be pilots. And another one is Hayao Miyazaki. And I think a lot of people will know Hayao Miyazaki and his love for planes. I think his father was an airplane designer. Someone in his family was, but he loved airplanes. I mean, obviously The Wind Rises is like his love for airplanes, but there's also Porco Rosso. And Porco Rosso is my favorite Miyazaki film. And I think that Miyazaki watched The Great Waldo Pepper for oh, absolutely. Porco Rosso. In, in, in fact, a lot of those flying scenes in Porco Rosso where, you know, it, it's lyrical flying and the plane is... Said and to he's up in the clouds. And, and, yeah, and, it, and, you, and even the music in yeah. Porco Rosso is... But it's all about the clouds. And it's... Because Porco Rosso, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's basically about a pilot. Think World War I pilot who has been cursed, basically, because he's the only survivor out of his squadron. And because of his curse, he now looks like a pig. And the movie is wonderful because they have all of these scenes of him flying above the clouds, and when he goes above the clouds, he is a man again. Oh, he's wow. no longer cursed as this pig. And every now and then you can see him as a man, but he has, like, this heaviness of him. And it just reminded me of all the Waldo Pepper stuff about, like, when you're up in the clouds, that's where the honor and the chivalry is. Miyazaki's also a sentimentalist. You know, he, um, and I mean that in the most positive of ways, in the way that this movie is also sentimental and nostalgic and sentimental for freedom. Now, Roger, you were kind of talking earlier about Frank Tallman, the stunt coordinator on this. Yeah. Um, you know, actually, I was just looking at this thing here because I'd opened up the book on um, Tallman. And uh, George Hill was asked, well, how did Tallman protect himself for the planned crashes, like the one in the fairgrounds and the lake? Because this guy's actually like crashing these yeah. biplanes. And he explains it and he says, well, he packed himself in with styrofoam. <laughs> and he wears a steel brace and really straps himself down. He had scuba gear in the plane for the crash on the pond in case he flipped. And, <laughs> and that could have been dangerous. Frank has a wooden leg, which doesn't help his mobility much, but he insists on doing all the really hairy crashes himself. A man's man. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it sounds like they were a match made in heaven. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's just it is like, as I was watching the movie again, again and again and again, I started thinking like, can you do this movie again? Can you do a movie that is you're like, wow, lucky we didn't kill anybody. I mean, George Hill says, you know, we ended up with some scars and we ended up with some injuries, but thank God nobody was killed. I mean, he's like, you know, talking about the good old scars they received, mm -hmm. <laughs> like from these wipeouts. That they I think had. you could do it. You just can't be as honest in interviews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, Quentin, um, earlier talking about like, you know, the movie's failings and the structural failings of the film and how that affected audiences. Uh, only look, and, and maybe only, how it still affects audiences. Uh, only look. This isn't my favorite George Roy Hill movie. It's obviously one of yours. It is my favorite. Okay, it yeah. is. Okay, and the thing is, I, I admire, I admire it a lot. I just have my own problems with it. But, but I don't want to necessarily be the voice of negativity when it comes to this movie because I have no really axe to grind. I have no axe to grind against it. But you know, but we're we're, we're going to put the narrative under a microscope. I'm I'm pointing I'm pointing out what I see. You're not saying anything that William Goldman hasn't said, or frankly, even that uh, um, George Roy Hill. Hasn't yeah. said. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're. It's just the history of it. It's just how audiences reacted on that opening weekend. They mm -hmm. were shocked to see the you know Susan Sarandon the die so early on. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to be nitpicky on opening weekend, but the failings of forty plus years ago are now the film's strengths. 
narratively, I love that. I I love that he did it. And if I'm talking to somebody who's just seen a blowout and says, "Oh wow, it's a real bummer that Sally died at the end," I go, "Well, you're a fucking idiot if you don't get it." <laughs> All right. However, I don't feel that way when it comes to the Great Waldo Peppers. But we we saw it again recently at the New Beverly, and I felt a, an emotional connection with the movie was severed when she died. Like a big, like literally, just imagine a natural cord that's in my body and imagine a pair of giant scissors. Yeah. And it, and it got severed when she, when she died. Well, imagine how it feels for Waldo and Bo. Yeah. There's the artifice of things and that's the carnival music, the mm-hmm. Henry Mancini carnival music. And that's all through the beginning of the movie and even through parts of the middle, but mm-hmm. come that final dogfight that Ernst Kessler and Waldo have, there's not a single note of mm-hmm. music throughout that entire sequence. Only in the end, once the uh, the dogfight has reached its conclusion, its mm-hmm. inevitable conclusion, we suddenly are introduced to the music from the beginning of the yeah, uh, yeah. This, this kind of very lyrical. Almost, it almost becomes a waltz mm. at well, a certain point. Well, it's interesting because what we're what I'm describing, what you're describing, it actually reminds me of when we would watch uh, uh, early cuts of Django Unchained with with uh, audiences. And so I'm sitting there with uh, uh, Amy Pascal, who was the head of uh, Sony Pictures at the time. She loved the movie when it was like just, you know, you know, the different adventures of Django and Dr. Schultz in the first half of the movie. Then once it got to Mississippi and it becomes a harder, harder movie, that's when she didn't like it. Now, don't get me wrong. She likes the movie. It, her, she, 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 prefer, made she preferred it less. Yeah, but the thing about but the thing about it is like she's just having a good time. She's rocking. She's and rolling. trying to make a movie for audiences. Yeah, she's rocking and rolling with the adventures of of Django and Schultz. But then when it actually gets into the heart of Mississippi and that mud and that Mississippi line comes over there, and you just see the true the surrealism ghastliness of the antebellum South in its full glory in a place like Mississippi. Now it's like, oh, this is ugly. This is like Auschwitz. This is this is this is terrible. It's meant to be. And the thing about it is, well, yeah, I understand where she's coming from, but she's missing the point of the movie. If if, if no, you need you you had this, but now you need this to go with it. And hopefully you're in good hands. I'll get you on the other side of it. But it's gonna be grueling for a while. But I'll get you on the other side. Well, how do you tell a tale of complete tragedy? And I mean American tragedy that essentially points a little bit of a finger at the audience without having yeah. this kind of a trajectory. Yeah, no, no. It would have been, yeah, it could have been like Skin Game, all right? And they're just like, you know, uh, these guys getting into one fun adventure after another. And it actually just shows how breezy the film is, how surprisingly breezy the film is for the whole first half. Mm. Uh, but but then the chickens come to roost <laughs> in the second half. My favorite scene being that Ernst Kessler scene at the very end. With, I, with the two of them talking on the bridge? With the two of them talking on the bridge. And then you got me thinking about the dogfight that they go do because Ernst is lying to Waldo about the salute. Mm-hmm. And obviously Waldo was not there. But once they get up into the air... Well, they're able to fulfill each other's well, that's, need. That, it's not just each other's needs, it's each other's dreams. Each they're other's dreams. Feeling- like, he gets to salute to Waldo. Yeah. He gets to do what has been a kind of a lie the he's, entire- just, he's just been shooting children in the air. Yeah. Now he gets to become the legend. And that's, yeah. and that's so a does wonderful Waldo, moment. And so does Waldo. Yeah, it's a so- wonderful moment. I watched this movie at the New Beverly, and then more recently I watched it at home on a DVD that I have because my dad loves this movie, so I have it available to me 24-7. And we also have the VHS if you ever want to watch I, well, a- uh... Here's my VHS tape of it. 
that I bought off of eBay. I yeah. don't actually have written down how much I bought it for like I usually do, mm-hmm. but the Video Archives VHS is what Quentin has. I have the video. That's obviously some reprint way down the line because the, the, <laughs> the, the MCA uh, placement is like stronger. Oh, yeah. here. Uh, look at well, that. Copyright mine, number is right there. Look, mine is like a like a. Like one, a well, it's a very newish one. Yeah, it's this like is, a new one. This is, this is a MCA home video. All right. That's not universal home video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, yeah but that's that, much that later. later. That came later. And yours is actually a little more faded. Yours is almost. Yeah. Like a softer. Well, mine looks really like a paperback, like, as if from a series of paperbacks that are all yellow, all yeah. right, that have this kind of thing in it. Uh, uh, you could find uh, my video archives tape in the drama section under the G's, and the tape number is 7221. Can I see the back of that really quick? Because sure. mine says that it is 1990. So this must be a 1990, and this must be. How, how are they weight wise? I think the video archives one is heavier. Yeah, wow. You can, you can feel the, it. The proof of the pudding is I under the crust. It's negligible. That's <sighs> negligible, but this is still a little heavier. Yeah, it's Roger, a little heavier. If you want to, it, look it at, is a very. Breath- it, looks like, it looks like a bootleg. Like I got a Chinese bootleg. No, I think by the time, <laughs> I think by the nineties, by the by the nineties, I think you know they literally had exactly the amount of tape for the movie. Where in uh, the 80s, it's not just a video. <laughs> yeah, it's whatever stock they, yeah. <laughs> stock size tapes they had. The movie's actually super breath, you know, at its uh, mm. at its running length. And it doesn't feel to me like there's any fat on the film. I mean, I watch it and it just feels like every scene is moving into the next scene. And so I think that brings us to an end of another exciting chapter of the Video Archives podcast, one of our favorite ones where we pick one movie and thoroughly discuss it to the ends of his scenes of the sprockets of his film. So I, my co-host Roger Roberts Avery, and our announcer Gala Raquel Avery, (laughs) I bid you adieu. See you in the skies. Bye. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richmond and Gala Avery with executive producers Colin Anderson and Natalie Muallam. Our engineers are Alex Gonzalez and Marcus Hom. Find out more about the show and get Video Archives merch at videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart.
Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 